Chapter 12 A Four-Day Planet by H. Beam Piper This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four-Day Planet Chapter 12 Castaways Working We had been away from the boat for about two hours. When we got back, I saw that Abdullah and his helpers had gotten the deck plates off the engine well and used them to build a more substantial barricade at the ruptured stern. The heater was going and the boat was warm inside, not just relatively to the outside, but actually comfortable. It was even more crowded, however, because there was a ton of collapsium shielding in four sections and the generator and power unit piled in the middle. Abdullah and Tom and Hans Kronje were looking at the converters, which to my not very knowing eye seemed to be in a hopeless mess. There was some more work going on up at the front. Cesario Vieira had found a small portable radio that wasn't in too bad condition, and had it apart. I thought he was going about the most effective work of anybody, and waited over the pile of engine parts to see what he was doing. It wasn't much of a radio. A hundred miles was the absolute limit of its range, at least for sending. "'Is this all we have?' I asked, looking at it. It was the same type as the one I carried on the job, camouflaged in a camera case, except that it wouldn't record. "'There's the regular boat radio, but it smashed up pretty badly. I was thinking we could do something about cannibalizing one radio out of parts from both of them.' We used a lot of radio equipment on the times, and I do a good bit of work on it. I started taking the big set apart, and then remembered the receiver for the locator and got at that, too. The trouble was that most of the stuff in all the sets had been miniaturized to a point where watchmakers' tools would have been pretty large for working on them, and all we had was a general repair kit that was just about fine enough for gunsmithing. While we were fooling around with the radios, Ramon Llewellyn was telling the others what we found up the other branch of the fjord. Joe Kyvelson shook his head over it. "'That's too far from the boat. We can't trudge back and forth to work on the engines. We could cut firewood down there and float it up with the lifters, and I think that's a good idea about using slabs of the soft wood to build a hut. But let's build the hut right here.' "'Well, suppose I take a party down now and start cutting?' the maid asked. "'Not yet. Wait till Abe gets back and we see what he found upstream. There may be something better up there.' Tom, who had been poking around in the converter, said, "'I think we can forget about the engines. This is a machine-shop job. We need parts, and we haven't anything to make them out of or with.' "'That was about what I thought.' Tom knew more about lift-and-drive engines than I'd ever learn, and I was willing to take his opinion as confirmation of my own. "'Tom, take a look at this mess,' I said. "'See if you can help us with it.' He came over, looked at what we were working on, and said, "'You need a magnifier for this. Wait till I see something.' Then he went over to one of the lockers, rummaged in it, and found a pair of binoculars. He came over to us again, sat down, and began to take them apart. As soon as he had the two big objective lenses out, we had two fairly good magnifying lenses. That was a big help, 
but being able to see what had to be done was one thing, and having tools to do it was another. So he found a sewing kit and a piece of emery stone, and started making little screwdrivers out of needles. After a while, Abe Clifford and Piet Dumont and the other man returned and made a beeline for the heater and the coffee-pot. After Abe was warmed a little, he said, "'There's a little waterfall about half a mile up. It isn't too hard to get up over it, and above the ground levels out into a big, bowl-shaped depression that looks as if it had been a lake-bottom once. The wind isn't so bad up there.' and this whole lake-bottom, or whatever it is, is grown up with trees. It would be a good place to make a camp, if it wasn't so far from the boat. "'How hard would it be to cut wood up there and bring it down?' Joe asked, going on to explain what he had in mind. "'Why, easy. I don't think it would be nearly as hard as the place Ramon found.' "'Neither do I,' the mate agreed. Climbing up that waterfall down the stream with a half-tree trunk would be a lot harder than dropping one over beside the one above. He began zipping up his parka. Let's get the cutter and the lifters and go up now. Wait till I warm up a little and I'll go with you, Abe said. Then he came over to where Cesario and Tom and I were working to see what we were doing. He chucked appreciatively at the midget screwdrivers and things Tom was making. I'll take that back, Ramon, he said. I can do a lot more good right here. Have you taken any of the radio navigational equipment apart yet? he asked us. We hadn't. We didn't know anything about it. Well, I think we can get some stuff out of the astrocompass that can be used. Let me in here, will you? I got up. You take over for me, I said. I'll go on the wood-chopping detail. Tom wanted to go, too. Abe told him to keep on with his tool-making. Piet Dumont said he'd guide us, and Glenn Morell said he'd go along. There was some swapping around of clothes, and we gathered up the two lifters and the sonocutter and a floodlight and started upstream. The waterfall above the boat was higher than the one below, but not quite so hard to climb, especially as we had the two lifters to help us. The worst difficulty, and the worst danger, was from the wind. Once we were at the top, though, it wasn't so bad. We went a couple of hundred yards through a narrow gorge, and then we came out onto the old lake bottom Abe had spoken about. As far as our lights would shine in the snow, we could see stubby trees with snaky branches growing out of the tops. We just started on the first one we came to slicing the down-hanging branches away to get at the trunk and then go to work on that. We took turns using the sonocutter, and the rest of us stamped around to keep warm. The first trunk must have weighed a ton and a half, even after the branches were all off. We could barely lift one end of it with both lifters. The spongy stuff, which changed from bark to wood as it went into the middle, was two feet thick. We cut that off in slabs to use for building the hut. The hardwood core, once we could get it lit, would make a fine hot fire. We could cut that into burnable pieces after we got it to camp. We didn't bother with the slashings. Just threw them out of the way. There was so much big stuff here that the branches weren't worth taking in. We had eight trees down and cut into slabs and billets, 
before we decided to knock off. We didn't realize until then how tired and cold we were. A couple of us had taken the wood to the waterfall and heaved it over at the side as fast as the others got the trees down and cut up. If we only had another cutter and a couple more lifters, I thought, if we only had an airworthy boat. When we got back to camp, everybody who wasn't crippled and had enough clothes to get away from the heater came out and helped. First, we got a fire started. There was a small arc torch, and we needed that to get the dense hardwood burning. And then we began building a hut against the boat. Everybody worked on that but Dominic Silverstein. Even Abe and Cesario knocked off work on the radio, and Joe Kyvelson and the man with the broken wrist gave us a little one-handed help. By this time, the wind had fallen and the snow was coming down thicker. We made snow shovels out of the hard outer bark, although they broke in use pretty often, and banked snow up against the hut. I lost track of how long we worked, but finally we had a place we could all get into with a fireplace, and it was as warm and comfortable as the inside of the boat. We had to keep cutting wood, though. Before long it would be too cold to work up in the woods, or even go back and forth between the woods and the camp. The snow had finally stopped, and then the sky began to clear and we could see stars. That didn't make us happy at all. As long as the sky was clouded and the snow was falling, some of the heat that had been stored during the long day was being conserved. Now it was all radiating away into space. The stream froze completely, even the waterfall. In a way, that was a help. We could slide wood down over it, and some of the billets would slide a couple of hundred yards downstream. But the cold was getting to us. We only had a few men working at wood-cutting, Cesario and old Piet Dumont and Abe Clifford and I, because we were the smallest and could wear bigger men's parkas and overpants over our own. But as long as any of us could pile on enough clothing and waddle out of the hut, we didn't dare stop. If the firewood ran out, we'd all freeze stiff in no time at all. Abe Clifford got the radio working at last. It was a peculiar job as ever was, but he thought it would have a range of about five hundred miles. Somebody kept at it all the time, calling Mayday. I think it was Bish Ware who told me that Mayday didn't have anything to do with the day after the last day of April. It was an old Terran French, Made, meaning help me. I wondered how Bish was getting along, and I wasn't too optimistic about him. Cesario and Abe and I were up at the waterfall, picking up loads of firewood. We weren't bothering now with anything but the hard and slow-burning cores, and had just gotten two of them hooked onto the lifters. I straightened for a moment and looked around. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, and two of Fenris's three moons were making everything as bright as day. The glisten of the snow and the frozen waterfall in the double moonlight was beautiful. I turned to Cesario. See what all you'll miss if you take your next reincarnation off Fenris, I said. This, and the long sunsets and sunrises, and— Before I could list any more sights unique to our planet, the seven-millimeter machine-gun down at the boat began hammering, a short burst, and then another, 
and another and another. End of chapter 12